thanks especially to John Hartley for making the long schlep over from Australia after what was a hectic travel schedule in China right before coming here. Um, John Hartley is probably a familiar name to a lot of you, uh, sort of a seminal figure in cultural studies and the study of creative industries and television. I think I knew you first for television. Um, a very prolific scholar, some 20 books, 200 book chapters, and lots more articles than that. And the range sort of goes from the first book you did in 78, I want to say, with John Fisk, co-authored with John Fisk. So Understanding Television was a really key text back in the day. A reading television, sorry, not understanding, reading. And um, a book that's actually probably waiting for him at the hotel now because it's just hot off the press, uh, Digital digital Futures for Media and Cultural Studies, which we thought he'd have in his hand right now to show, but he didn't go back to the hotel room. Um, John is Distinguished Professor at Queensland University of uh, Technology, and he's research director for the Australian Research Council's Center for Center of Excellence for Creative Industries and Innovation. And as far as I know, that's kind of the first humanities-based funding that the uh, that the ARC uh, gave. So we're really looking forward to your comments tonight, John. And um, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Thank you very much, everybody. And. Uh, 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 I hope that I'll get through this with no problems. It's actually tomorrow morning for me, so uh, I'm, uh, it's not just a matter of time zones. Uh, uh, there's something you know, like against the law of physics going on here. Uh, but uh, I shall do my best. And uh, uh, what I want to do is to go through some of the, uh, as it were, the conceptual or, or uh, uh, the history of ideas uh, uh, the conceptual journey or the history of ideas that have led me to the work that I'm doing right now and try and connect it up with some of the things that I've done in the past and uh, that you might be more familiar with. Uh, I'm still aware of the fact that in most of the United States where I am known at all, uh, my name is Fiskin. I'm known as Fiskin Hartley and uh, that's, uh, that's still a... Uh, 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 that's still a past that I can't escape, even though that book was published 33 years ago. Uh, but I've done a few things since then. Okay, so this paper is, uh, it says that it outlines recent developments in the field of cultural and media studies, but naturally I don't have time to do that. Uh, it gives an account of changes in the economy, culture and technology, uh, which I will skip through at breakneck speed because you know it all. Uh, and then move on to educational provision for the creative industries. In other words, not just what is the, what is the sector of the economy called the creative industries, but uh, how do we prepare ourselves educationally for it. And the, what I'm trying to do here is to outline a new approach for media and cultural studies based on uh, uh, a new dialogue with disciplines that haven't normally formed part of the... Uh, the um, intellectual horizon of those subject areas, uh, and in particular evolutionary theory and complexity studies, which have started to mold my thought and provoke uh, the, some very interesting questions, and is a direct result of the ability that I've had in the research center that uh, William mentioned to work across interdisciplinary boundaries with people from evolutionary economics, from computer science, and elsewhere. So. Uh, if it is possible to modernize, refresh, renew media studies to go with changes in media themselves, then what role can these new 
dialogues with science-based disciplines play and uh, how, how might we recast our thinking about comparative, the comparative media environment that is of interest to you guys. And I think that there are a couple of terms that are useful in that regard, and I'll go to them to some extent. They are micro-productivity, which is based on user-created content, and social learning, which is based on networked knowledge. So my uh, account of uh, uh, developments in cultural, uh, in cultural and media studies is simply a, an opportunity for me to parade about half of my book covers to you, uh, just to show that I haven't been idle since reading television, uh, and to say that there are two things to say about it. The first one is that I think the, uh, the intellectual quarry, the intellectual... Uh, uh, problem that uh, I was seeking to solve with John Fisk in reading television, which is what is the relationship between addresser and addressee in technologically equipped cultures such as those of modernity? Uh, what is the role between sender and receiver in, sh in the Shannon terms? Uh, what, is, uh, what is the relationship between those, th uh, those agents? Uh, remains a question. However, the terms of the question have changed completely because the media through which that uh, relationship is mediated uh, have changed too. So I think I'm still asking the same questions, but obviously uh, I've had to take account of changes in the landscape beyond uh, uh, scholarly disciplines uh, and also in um, uh, the, uh, the uh, encounters with other disciplinary fields. So I've, I've, uh, I'm not going to say anything more about this except that, as you'll see from there, my work is divided, as, as it were, between uh, an attempt to uh, conceptualize television as an object of study in new ways and also a strong motivation towards teaching new domains, new fields of study uh, in uh, various forms. So the American Cultural Studies is, uh, book is a reader, the Creative Industries book is a reader, the Short History of Cultural Studies is an attempt to, to provide a narrative about our field. Uh, which uh, may be of assistance to students. While some of the other books, for example, The Indigenous Public Sphere, is a report on a very specific and externally funded research pro uh, uh, project, and the others are, uh, are more uh, attempts to contribute to the field than to uh, provide a teaching environment. But you can see there's a mix there. More recently... Uh, there are two developments that I just want to mention as I race past. First one is that uh, I'm very committed to internationalizing my work, and most recently I've been doing quite a bit of work in China, where my uh, 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 own publications, but also the work of our center and our university, uh, have uh, gained some traction with the uh, policy development in that country. And um, so there's a, some translations there. And two new books, or two relatively recent books, The Uses of Digital Literacy, which is about uh, user-created content understood seriously rather than as part of an entertainment paradigm, and the new book, D Digital Futures for Cultural and Media Studies, uh, which at least has a very glorious cover. Uh, I, uh, nobody can speak for the contents yet because you haven't seen them. Um, but... Uh, uh, look out for that title in a bookshop near you. So I want to take you through the, uh, the stages in my recent work that contribute to where I've got to today. And I think probably the easiest way to do that is to 
home in very quickly onto the notion of the creative industries, which I understand is not that well known or uh, used in the American context, although you certainly have creative industries, uh, most people call them something else. And so uh, some of this may not be familiar uh, in the American context. However, uh, it's very important to try and understand not only that there is this connection between human creativity and the technologically equipped economy, but also uh, that um, we need some new models, uh, some new understandings to make sense of it. So that's the, that's the agenda. So I'm going to go through these... The, uh, uh, hang on, just before I do that, just to say that the models that we need uh, also need to be sensitive to changes since it's such a rapidly changing field. So what I'm going to do is present four models of the creative industries to show, first of all, how dynamic that field is and also some of the issues at stake in different ways of thinking about it. And then we'll go through some of the implications of that, formal, informal, and so on. And away we go. So the first of all, just to put this idea in context, uh, the approach to creativity that I'm talking about here is not based on individual human attributes. It's based on systems. And uh, so we're talking about creativity as a population-wide phenomenon. And I use the quotation from Walt Whitman, to have great poets, there must be great audiences too. You can't have elite creativity. You can't have great poets without there being a community of uh, interpretants uh, who are interested in what it is that's produced and perhaps competitively pushing it to uh, innovations of new kinds. So uh, the, the, the first idea about creativity is that it belongs to populations, not to elite individuals. The second thing is that creativity is distributed. And what that means is that uh, it is not simply a matter of human agency. There is also the matter of the economy uh, systems, uh, particularly digital systems in the contemporary environment, uh, to, to consider. And in that context, it becomes clear that the distinction between over here the economy, which is, connect, which is concerned with innovation, and over here, culture, which is concerned with heritage or with the preservation of identity, that these distinctions are meaningless and need to be superseded. So the approach to creativity is that it is distributed, and so are, uh, obviously, um, uh, uh, economic goods and services. So we need to understand how creativity is distributed and whether it can be improved having been distributed and by what agencies and uh, uh, again whether those agencies can uh, uh, can improve their productivity um, so we're now talking about new ways of creating value which may uh, occur outside of uh, the uh, uh, the the normal focus of economic analysis which is the firm the firm-based industrial model of mass production, which is clearly uh, underlying the business models of uh, broadcast TV and uh, printed newspapers, is obviously giving way to a network-based model. And here, the difference that I want to point to is just a simple one, which is that innovation in this model, the network model, doesn't come from firms. Firms don't know what they're inventing when they're inventing things like, for example, texting was an invention of users, not phone companies. Uh, the, uh, the uses to which Facebook has been put is entirely a matter for the networks of people and um, uh, groups that are using it and wasn't in the minds of the guys who started it, uh, whose uh, initial video on, on YouTube was 
uh, I think, my visit to the zoo or something like that. They had no idea what they were inventing uh, when they invented it. Um, so the innovations, the dynamism, the scale comes from users. It is not firm-based. And this is something that we need to take account of. Um, and finally, uh, it is my view that we need to think about digital media uh, production and consumption, not in terms of uh, uh, um, profit and loss, but in terms of the growth of knowledge. And this squares with some new movements in economics too, uh, 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 particularly in the area of evolutionary economics. So creativity is distributed across the, the economy uh, and uh, culture itself is becoming caught up in economic processes, but those economic processes are changing from firm-based to network-based activities. Uh, I hardly need to say this, but uh, it does allow me to use this wonderful word, zettabytes, uh, which is uh, certainly something, I think, is a, uh, is a, is a zettabyte a thousand billion billion? It's a lot, anyway. Uh, and so here we have a 2010 um, corporate uh, 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 graph, or not graph, Venn diagram, uh, that uh, shows what they say is the connection between what they call enterprise-generated content, that is firm-based uh, 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 creative production, and then user-generated content with a very strong overlap between the two. And the point of this is that not only is the digital universe growing at such a rate that we now have to use words like zettabytes to, uh, to describe it, but also that the balance of productivity is shifting from enterprise to user and that if we want to understand the digital universe, most of the matter in it that is visible to economic explanations of uh, digital culture uh, is invisible. So uh, it's digital. Creativity then is not a human attribute, it's a network attribute, and that network is digital. Creativity is urban. Uh, over half the world's population live in cities now, as of last year. Two-thirds use mobiles. That's seven billion people in the world. Five billion mobiles. Three billion city dwellers. And you can see the countries there, um, where USA comes in at a poor number three, uh, that uh, are um, uh, using mobiles in, by scale. And the point about this, of course, is that we're not just talking about affluent PC-wielding or Mac-wielding, uh, Western environments, but we are really talking about a global, uh, a global population of users of digital and mobile technologies. So I move on immediately to talk about these four models of the creative industries. And these are the four models. Uh, and what I, what I want to say that this is um, hovering between history and conceptualization. So uh, you could read this as a history. In the beginning, there was the creative cluster and now there are creative cities. Uh, but, it, the, but it's quite clear that we're doing some conceptual work here as well, and um, the, uh, the uh, different models can coexist with each other, and some places can miss out on one or other of these models. So I'm just going to go through them to explain some of the issues at stake, and then try and pull them back together. So the first one is the creative industries definition that became familiar in the 1990s, based on work from the British government, uh, the incoming Labour government of Tony Blair, where the Department of Culture, Media and, Support and Sport was looking for ways to bring culture around from the back door of subsidy and welfare to the front door of innovation and economic growth, and the creative industries was very much the creature of that ambition. 
uh, an ambition which was understood to be partial, opportunistic, and policy-driven rather than conceptual and uh, theory-driven at the time, but which has gained a good deal of um, weight and uh, uh, acceptance among scholars across the world, uh, whilst at the same time remaining controversial, it has to be said. Uh, but uh, it's a very um, individualistic and firm-based model of creativity. The creative industries are those firms where intellectual property produces a creative outcome that you can sell to consumers for profit. So uh, the industries involved are the familiar ones. Here is a, is a group of them, advertising, architecture, publishing, software, the performing arts, media production, art itself, design, fashion, and so on. Uh, the list varies depending on what country you're in. But there is this idea, first of all, that there are discrete creative industries that produce creative outputs for profit. And secondly, that if you cluster these together, you're going to get more bang for your buck. That clustering different creative industries in the same physical space. Uh, for example, a city, uh, for example, a city like London uh, is going to be, uh, uh, provide a multiplier effect to your economy. And um, this model has been very influential. It was picked up very quickly by uh, economic and, politi and political uh, policymakers uh, in many different uh, uh, countries, right across from the advanced economies of the West through to the developing and emergent economies, particularly in Southeast Asia, where, where um, creative economy strategies based on this model of the creative industries were quickly introduced. One of those countries was China, uh, which very interestingly joined the WTO just as this stuff was getting going, and uh, has had to, uh, what shall I say, um, succumb to a model of intellectual property based on this idea of creativity and start to become an enforcer of uh, intellectual property, uh, you know, as if uh, the, uh, the, the, the uh, model of the American record company is uh, the right one for developing a creative industry. Uh, clearly some issues there that need to be thought through. But this is where the model comes from. The idea of national, uh, national competitiveness based on creative outputs to be sold to consumers for profit. Uh, that sector of the economy is reckoned to be anywhere between 3 and 10% of a country's output. Uh, it's often very much larger in particular cities. So in cities uh, like Beijing or Shanghai, which I've just been to, uh, they reckon that their economy, their city economy, is uh, uh, roughly 12% creative industries. So these are quite substantial sectors of the economy for modernizing cities. But it doesn't describe the whole, um, uh, uh, the whole extent of uh, creative occupations. So you need to add to the creative clusters what we're calling here creative services, which is really a business-to-business -business model of creativity where I'm a designer or a media producer or a fashion designer even, and I supply services to, say, uh, the health uh, sector or the government sector or the manufacturing sector for their benefit. And thus there are perhaps a, th a third more creative occupations in the economy than shows up in the creative industry sector alone. So the, 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 impact, the economic impact of creativity in the contemporary environment is considerable, although quite hard to count because there's different uh, models afoot, as you've just seen. So these two, 
Creative Industries 1, which is Creative Clusters, Creative Industries 2, which is Creative Services. This is the, this is the, uh, the idea of the creative industries that has gained most traction with policymakers, has uh, caught the eye and uh, uh, to some extent the scholarly eye of uh, economists and uh, uh, economic sociologists. There are now journals devoted to this uh, area of work and uh, it has, despite uh, a good deal of cynicism and uh, skepticism, uh, nevertheless produced quite a large field of scholarship about the role that creative industries play in contemporary economies. But it remains a strongly firm-based and economy-based as a model of, the, of creativity. So we need to bring in some different kinds of agency. And uh, this, one, this is one that uh, I've been pushing very hard at any government that will listen, and that is a culture definition. That is to say, uh, 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 the idea of um, uh, creativity migrating beyond the firm and being part of the, uh, part of the universe of users uh, as well as uh, of producers. So we've moved away from the idea of a producer-based creativity to uh, one based on users and consumers. This constitutes a very different object of study from a firm-based economic model. It, it obviously requires attention to uh, uh, what I'm calling here an open innovation network and uh, to the creative uh, uh, actions among very large populations or the workforce as a whole, consumers and users and so on. So we're looking not at large-scale, elaborate, creative productions that are then sold, but very small-scale and often emergent creative actions, which then can be networked and aggregated and sometimes reused for other purposes by other agencies. Um, a very... Uh, a very um, what shall I say? An obvious example of how this works is... Um, user-based uh, apps on smartphones and so on. So there is now a, a, a two-way street, as it were, where uh, creativity is not just one way through the economy you know, from producer to consumer. It is a, a, a relationship between different um, agents in a much larger and more complex network. And finally, all this doesn't just happen in cyberspace. It happens in real places at real times. And so it's quite important, it seems to me, and has become certainly significant in the scholarly environment to think about creative, creativity uh, uh, in cities, and in cities in particular, not just places where people live, but uh, the accelerating... Um, uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the acceleration, I was going to say caused by, but certainly... Um, uh, uh, observable in cities of uh, creative activity caused by people living together in uh, um, uh, what should we say competitive mixture uh, is uh, clear for all to see there is a higher level of uh, uh, creative productivity in cities than there is in non-cities so we need to understand the role of cities what are cities for uh, and uh, here I think one of the great definitions I think it's from Jane Jacobs is that cities are a machine a human invention for the solution of um, problems of complexity. And they are an invention that nobody invented. They are an invention of the system itself and the agents in it. So they're self-organized uh, and, uh, as it were, bottom-up uh, solutions to problems of complexity in human systems and have been like that for the last 10,000 years, uh, in which creativity plays a crucial role of innovating and uh, allowing uh, um, 
uh, allowing uh, um, interfaces between different systems or clashes between different systems to be worked through. So here then we have not just the individual as in the user, not just the firm or the institution uh, as in the clusters model, but here a population-wide notion of creativity as an active agent in innovation. So those are the four models, clusters, services, citizens, and uh, cities. So I move on to the implications of that analysis. And the first one is uh, what I call a methodological imperative. Uh, it's, it, it quite clearly, to me at any rate, requires a different kind of conceptual modeling, conceptual understanding, to make sense of what is happening in uh, digitally equipped cultures compared with cultures understood as face-to-face -face interaction or media understood as command and control bureaucracies sending messages down the line to relatively passive consumers. Both of those models of culture and of media fall when you start looking at um, uh, the complexity of creative uh, production and distribution in the kind of systems I've been talking about. So uh, this is where <coughs> the um, concept of cultural science comes from. It's one that we're experimenting with, I think is the right way to put it, at our research centre. Although it isn't a new term, it was introduced into the English language at any rate by Raymond Williams in, in the 1970s. And what he was describing was the continental tradition of uh, cultural sociology that uh, you would associate with the names of people like uh, Weber, Dilthey, Ricard, people like that. And um, uh, this was a, a mode of thinking about um, human relationships, identities, powers, and meaningfulness that sidestepped the impasses that Williams thought he saw in the way that these matters were studied in the English context or the British context, uh, namely through English departments which were not interested in these kinds of approaches. So Williams introduced the notion of cultural science as a way of, of um, modernising uh, the um, the then uh, version of, of English or literary studies that he was confronted with. And I call that cultural science 1.0 because Williams was not uh, pursuing the same kind of uh, objectives as we are. And that's because we are interested in adding to his humanities-based understanding of cultural science based on German sociology, adding to that these two very different approaches that have developed in the natural sciences in the period since Williams, that is evolutionary approaches and complexity science. Now, you speak to most people in the humanities that I'm uh, familiar with, and uh, evolution produces a, the concept of evolution produces a relatively allergic response. Uh, it uh, seems to provoke um, ideas of social Darwinism rather quickly, uh, but uh, there is a question that cultural studies must ask itself, which is if it's going to move beyond the uh, repetitive micro description of uh, innumerable case studies, then how is it going to systematize its knowledge and how is it going to understand the dynamism of change within those systems? And uh, this is why you have to ask the question, why is cultural studies not an evolutionary science? a question that Thorstein Veblen asked of economics a hundred years ago. And economics has just started to make that shift. Well, in the next hundred years, we need to move cultural studies uh, uh, towards that uh, kind of question. 
And complexity science is obviously something that's already having a big impact on the way that we look at digital networks. But we need to extend it beyond that to see how social networks, uh, both digital and non-digital, uh, can be understood in that way. And a lot of work has been done already in uh, business economics uh, by uh, those who are interested in modeling how people make choices and how those choices affect um, uh, systematic or network relationships down the line and how that change can itself be modeled. So th these are really relevant uh, uh, questions for us, but they're not often asked in a humanistic environment, and I think they should be, and I'm calling the uh, attempt to do that Cultural Science 2.0. There's a hell of a lot of names under there, uh, and of course I've read all of them, and um, the, uh, the, the, the point about that uh, series of dot points with lots of names against them is that this work of trying to understand contemporary environments uh, through uh, evolutionary and complexity approaches is very widespread, and there is a lot of work out there that we ignore at our peril. So there's a methodological imperative. But more simply, uh, there is a... a, a, a a flip, a change that we just need to take more seriously than we do. Uh, it is quite clear that corporate uh, productivity is still very high. It's quite clear that the economy is still run uh, based on the concept of the firm. And it's uh, equally clear that uh, firms don't always have benign motives. But uh, it is uh, the idea that that is what makes the world go around uh, strikes me as being plainly mistaken. Innovations and resistances alike come from uh, uh, people's use of these systems rather than from the intentions of their producers. So the consumer audience clearly has changed uh, compared with the way it was conceived in television studies as I started it in the 1970s, where the only choices they had were to like or not to like, uh, to um, celebrate or to resist, as they used to say, uh, the uh, offerings put in front of them. But now, those same consumers are participants and co-producers of the creative economy as a whole. The economy, that is. They're co-producers of the economy, not just of uh, creative ideas uh, and, uh, and of culture also, which we knew beforehand. Uh, and they're doing it via these online pla and mobile platforms and social network markets uh, that I've already uh, alluded to. Now, the idea of a social network market is one that may, uh, I don't know what resonance it may have with people from a humanistic background, but from people from economics, a social network market is a very peculiar object because it is not based on the idea of the rational um, uh, individual who makes choices based on their uh, self-interest, uh, choices which can be best expressed through price. That's the standard, as it were, classical economics position on uh, how choices are made and uh, price is the signal that tells you that you've got your choices in equilibrium. Social network markets are simply not like that. Cho social network markets operate on uh, a, a, the principle not of rational choice uh, at, for individual advantage, but on the choices of others. You copy what others who are of higher status or of uh, desirable status are doing. So social network markets are markets where choices are based on the choices of others, determined by the choices of others, and where choices are made 
based on status, not price. And it's, it, as soon as you admit that that is a kind of market, then uh, a lot of what uh, economics or economists think about uh, the creative environment, which is that it's not really part of the economy and they don't have to worry about it, changes. Um, so this is one of the things that uh, has come out of our dialogue with uh, economics, that uh, you, you have to rethink what is meant by a market and how they work uh, in, in this context. Okay, uh, we have um, uh, producer consumers and we have another new phenomenon which is participative citizenship and uh, I know there's a lot of work being done here in that very regard but I just wanted to point out that this is something that is not just uh, for profit based uh, uh, in, uh, enterprises and endeavours but can work at the civic level as well and an example happened to be in my hometown last year we had some devastating and lethal floods uh, and um, the the most newsworthy uh, uh, outcome of those floods, apart from the fact that uh, an area of Queensland, apparently the size of Germany and France put together, was flooded, uh, that was uh, you know that was just like one of those things about Australia that people love to report. But much more interesting was the fact that as soon as the floods uh, subsided, uh, people started helping each other, completely outside of the official. Uh, emergency networks and uh, that picture you can see at the bottom there is part of a crowd of 55,000 people who turned up with um, shovels and rakes and whatnot uh, in order to help clear up the streets of complete strangers after the flood. So we had here a mass mobilization of uh, mutual assistance based on uh, what uh, is quite clearly um, uh, uh, participatory citizenship in times of crisis. And furthermore, this energy was uh, uh, also deployed through um, uh, various digital means. So there were quite a lot of online startups which uh, were offering help in the way of like food for the rescue teams, uh, bringing supplies into maroon towns, uh, a lot of organization of uh, people's efforts from around the country using the internet. So. Uh, the participatory turn in digital media and in uh, times of crisis came together as a form of citizenship practice. Uh, whoa, that didn't work. Uh, that's what happens when you change from PC to Mac, isn't it? Uh, I'm not going to spend very long on this. It's, it was a complicated <laughs> diagram before it went bananas like that. Uh, <laughs> but it's doing something very simple. It's simply arguing that uh, there is a, a set of habits of thought that seem to belong to culture and that seem to belong to the economy. So, for example, culture is often understood as the domain of consumption, of demand, uh, of places where scenes might, might occur. Think of music scenes, uh, where you might go to a festival. And um, uh, this is the area where you would expect to see play and identity, meaning formation, and so on. Whereas the economy is the opposite of all that, not consumption but production, not demand but supply, not the scene but the industry, uh, um, uh, not identity but growth and not play but work. Now, the point about cities is that they bring those two sets of values together and mix them, sometimes in innovative ways which produce further outcomes not predicted in either of the two dimensions on either side. So I'm sorry about the uh, bizarre... Um, anyway, um, so I've tried to suggest that there is a, a, 
a, uh, there's a need for us to think much more about how uh, creative acts of ordinary people, users, citizens, consumers should be understood as part of a network process of creative product productivity. But that kind of productivity is not the same as the productivity of firms. No matter how creative I am, I'm not going to be as creative as News Corporation, uh, just to name one, uh, one uh, organization at random. Uh, uh, as you know, News Corporation is sometimes too creative for its own good. But you can see there's a very big difference between the voluntary labors of individuals, no matter how externally networked, and the concentrated and intellectually, intellectual property protected uh, activities of firms. Uh, and this problem is one that's been made to go away in the past by not counting it. However, I think we, we can do better than that. And this is where the idea of micro-productivity comes in. Micro-productivity and micro-lots of things uh, 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 have become much more important uh, concepts in, in quite a few different domains over recent years. Uh, one, of, one or two of them are shown on this slide, which I'll just quickly go through. One that I think is very productive for us to think about is the idea of micro-inventions. And this is the case made by the economic historian Joel Mockier, who says that the great inventions of the Industrial Revolution, for example, the steam engine or the power loom, the things that we're familiar with perhaps from school, these great inventions could not have resulted in the economic takeoff that we now recognize as the Industrial Revolution and the self-sustaining growth, economic growth, that followed from that. So one of the most important moments of economic history could not have occurred with simply the invention of these uh, uh, machineries by themselves. What was required was what he calls micro-inventions, which is tweaking, adaptation, putting to use, and um, uh, developing new uses for these, these uh, headline uh, inventions by an army of artisans, anonymous producers, and indeed consumers, people who had got hold of machines and made them do something different or something better. And his, his argument is quite clear that the um, Industrial Revolution was a product of this uh, widespread activity of micro-inventiveness, particularly in Britain, which in this respect differed from continental European countries at the time. And so uh, what, what he's arguing for here is a networked, bottom-up, anonymous, as it were, crowdsourced solution to technological problems, which is exactly the model that I'm trying to develop for creativity. Uh, we know about microfinance, the Grameen Bank. We know about perhaps microgeneration of electrical power, a movement that has by no means displaced uh, power stations, but where people are, are motivated to generate their own electricity and sell excess back to the net, uh, or to the grid, should I say. Uh, there's a very interesting new development in intellectual property, uh, and that is uh, what I call micro-copyright, where uh, copyright historically is a firm-to-firm -firm matter, you know, publisher A, publisher B. Authors, consumers, never heard of it. Uh, but uh, that was in the 19th century. Now, copyright is, uh, uh, as it were, built into your smartphone, and you may have to pay um, fees related to copyright. Uh, as a kind of micro-payments out of your uh, consumer choices, for example, with things like ringtones. So there is now a, a movement to extend copyright in ways that you might not necessarily approve of, but nevertheless, they're out there. 
shifting it from business to business to a business to consumer uh, form of micro, uh, micro payment. And then there's micro manufacturing, uh, uh, which is yet to achieve its potential, of course. But here you have the possibility of real industrial productivity, not based on factories. You can code for uh, the production of some item and then print it out in 3D printers. So we have now the possibility of micro productivity that used to be uh, that used to require factories. So microproductivity is out there in the environment, but it's very rarely discussed in relation to creativity. We never talk about creative microproductivity of uh, uh, you know, populations. We only ever talk about the creativity of favored individuals of various kinds. So microproductivity in creative activity is a, a concept that I think will help us to, to uh, uh, reassess what is uh, in various places called DIY or do-it-yourself culture, user-created content, and what I've already described as social network markets. Therefore, the production of meanings and identities and relationships, those things that we've been concerned about in cultural and media studies for 40, 50 years, uh, that kind of productivity, the pro productivity of meanings, the productivity of identities and so on, uh, plus an efficient distribution system, that is digital internet and uh, online networks equals microproductivity. And this is the generation of novelty and variety by users at three levels of uh, scale. The personal scale, the institutional scale, which might be a firm or, or a social group or a, uh, um, an association, and also at regional or city levels of complexity. So that's that. And then we move on to the next concept that I'm interested in introducing to the agenda, and that is this concept of social learning. And the first thing I want to do here is uh, um, simply cite the uh, uh, position uh, adopted by uh, Doug Thomas and John Seely Brown, which is that social learning uh, is um, a mechanism for innovation, that social learning is like micro-invention. Uh, and you'll see a collection of um, uh, magazine covers across the bottom. Uh, this is to do with uh, my recent experience in China, where an example of um, social learning as innovation comes to hand very uh, uh, interestingly, it seems to me, in, the, in this particular magazine, this magazine called Vision, which was founded by an artist called Chen Yifei, uh, who started his own career as a socialist realist painter in the uh, prior to opening up uh, period of um, China, who moved to the United States and various other places and eventually made a lot of money uh, as a painter of um, traditional domestic scenes, particularly of beautiful women and particularly of people playing musical instruments uh, as an oil painter. So he went from socialist realist ideological art through to uh, consumer-based um, and very high-priced fine art. Uh, but he came back to China and instead of uh, uh, resting on his laurels, he started to develop, um, uh, 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 um, what shall I say, organizations or, or initiatives for uh, the, um, uh, the development of creativity across a much wider field in that country. So for example, he set up uh, a design-based um, retail, retail outlet he, he set up a model agency and uh, fashion business. Uh, he was a filmmaker. In fact, he died 
uh, I think in 2005, while on set on his, uh, on his latest film. And uh, uh, as you can see, he's trying to diversify his activities through uh, the, the uh, gamut of uh, creative industries. But uh, he was also really interested in social learning, that is, learning from the outside. And vision was his vehicle for doing that. Vision, in the early days in particular, was stuffed full of copied, plagiarized content from high-end European art and fashion and design magazines. So first of all, there is the learning from the outside environment by someone who has a stake in what it is that is being represented. And then secondly, Vision itself, which is a very beautiful magazine and very interestingly printed with all kinds of different papers. Uh, I can't show you because I didn't bring a copy because they're very heavy. Um, uh, is uh, a form of uh, a device for social learning among a readership. Vision has a circulation of about 260, 280,000 in um, China, which isn't a very large number of people, but it is people who are interested in developing these relations between or among fashion, design, and art. And so for me, it's a very good example of how uh, old style creativity can be redistributed through uh, social learning from the outside and uh, through the community of interest in, uh, on the inside in any environment. I, I, I use this example assuming that most of you would not be familiar with it, but it is a model that works uh, um, uh, generally. So I'm trying to say then that social learning is not to do with individual literacy. It's not to do with... Uh, uh, teaching, it's certainly not to do with schooling. Social learning is a property of systems and uh, it, is, uh, uh, it is the engagement in networks and in changing networks and the experimentation with what those networks can let you do that constitutes social learning. So social learning is what we used to call entertainment. And uh, the importance of play, the importance of entertainment uh, uh, where people's own sense of identity, their own personal relationships, and their own investments in meaningfulness are the attractant towards engagement, uh, can then result in innovations in the system as a whole. Uh, examples are so plentiful it's hardly worth mentioning them, but YouTube and Facebook are two of them. So it becomes clear that connectivity and technology are learning resources for populations. And in some senses, those learning resources for populations are not just places where innovation occurs outside of firms, as I've already argued, but are outpacing uh, knowledge organizations and learning organizations uh, that precede them. For example, universities, who I think, which I think have a, uh, a, a hill to climb to compete with some of the uh, learning potential uh, uh, systems that we uh, uh, can identify on the net. So social learning then is a mechanism using attractant rather than compulsion and uh, engagement rather than certification to uh, encourage the emergence of the new. Play is a form of experimentation for um, cultivating imagination and innovation in individuals. And the creative industries is the economic output or out upshot, should I say, of that activity. So what are the implications of all this for education? Uh, and it seems to me that we should be concentrating our educational effort, the institutional, traditional educational effort, not just on 
uh, on elite artists or the training of uh, uh, people who will go into firms and employment, but on spreading and improving the micro-productivity skills of the whole population. That seems to me like a reasonable challenge to set ourselves. Um, enabled by digital culture and content, and what I've called in various uh, contexts now the entrepreneurial consumer, the consumer who, in the act of consumption, is creating something new, something enterprising. Uh, the, the, um, it, it will take me too long to go through this, but the example of an entrepreneurial consumer is the uh, person known as a fashionista, somebody who is emulating fashion trends, but at the same time producing original ensembles and meanings, and uh, themselves may be emulated by others. So in the sense of a social network market, consumers can play an entrepreneurial, that is a leadership role, and others can learn from them. And that's how things work for firms like Zara, for example. Uh, so play, novelty, and uh, information are all subject to this kind of digitally equipped micro-productivity and learning. Uh, the other implication that uh, education hasn't really um, dealt with, and education isn't alone in this, is that copying is absolutely necessary to this process. And that therefore, the restriction of copyright, uh, to, uh, of, uh, of intellectual property to copyright, uh, is um, uh, very much a problem that needs to be worked through rather than a, a, a value that needs to be protected. So the creative industries model that says that creativity results in intellectual property, which then needs to be exploited, uh, seriously underestimates the, the, in, the requirement for shared knowledge and for copying of uh, trends and the reproduction of uh, source materials in order to take the whole system to a new place. And so uh, one of the things that I'm interested in researching right now is this notion of copying as innovation, not copying and innovation, but copying as innovation. How can we understand the process of copying itself as a contributor to change in systems? Uh, I know I'm running out of time, so I'm going to um, wrap this up quite quickly. Uh, the final thing that we haven't really thought about enough in educational setups is not just the creativity of individuals, but how that creative agency can be turned into enterprise of whatever kind, whether it's activist or commercial or community-based, but how institutionalization works, how people develop new kinds of organization or association for uh, the, the um, improvement and distribution of creativity and expertise, this has not been thought about. We very rarely teach people how to become startups, for example, as well as artists, and we should. There are some ways of doing it. They include helping people to develop associations, running competitions to get new ideas out of the woodwork, uh, using festivals, which uh, we have a term for as well, instead of social network markets, uh, and festivals are uh, novelty bundling markets. Uh, where, uh, which we can talk about later if you want to, but uh, how do you get people to attend to novelties, to like something they've never seen before, is actually a quite difficult uh, conceptual problem to which the festival is an answer. And uh, as I've already said, I think uh, startups uh, should be on the educational agenda as much as individual skill. So for, for higher education, for creative innovation, and not just for creative elites, uh, all of these things require a network model 
rather than the old-fashioned industrial value chain model, where feedback, that is social learning, uh, drives further growth. And the role of higher education in that process is not only to train the professionals for the creative industries and or the creative clusters and the creative services, but also to promote an enterprising innovation culture among all graduates and to facilitate social learning, social networks, play and experimentation uh, in creative places that's uh, like cities. So we need con new conceptual models, new analytical approaches and interdisciplinary methods to achieve those aims. Uh, one example, which is fantastically successful, and you'd be amazed if you came and saw it, is uh, the, cr the Creative Industries Precinct at uh, QUT, which is, uh, just very briefly, the top, left, the top left picture shows the 16 hectare site on which it's built. The bottom picture on that side shows the master plan model, which is now slowly being unfolded uh, so far to a tune of about a billion dollars of investment. And on the right-hand side, uh, that is the creative industries precinct that we built at QUT in order to pursue these educational aims. Uh, and that's my office. <laughs> um, so I've made my claims, but now I just want to finish on one. Have I got time to do this, or shall I just wrap? Just keep going? I'll keep going. Uh, the, um, uh, the, the, there is one aspect of this that uh, I, I think uh, can be drawn out and perhaps should be drawn out, and that is how do you measure the outputs, the uh, effectivity, the productivity, the efficiency of these systems that I've been talking about. And I'm not sure that I can answer that in two or three minutes, but uh, it is possible to give it a go. And that is that all of these activities take place in cities, and some cities appear to be more creative than others. So let's measure that. And so my research center, the CCI, is in the process of working with a Chinese partner, the Beijing Academy of Science and Technology, to develop something called the CCI-CCI, which is the CCI Creative City Index. And uh, uh, we, we are at a kind of beta version of that right now, which, whose purpose is to assist city authorities uh, and ur urban strategists to provide data on different cities, comparative data on different cities, uh, to, to uh, measure uh, their creativity. And the point about this is that we're not just measuring you know, how big and important a city is, like London or New York or Tokyo, but we're trying to measure its productivity as a creative hub, including all four of the models that I've been going through, including micro-productivity and including social learning. How do you put all of those things into a set of indicators and then measure them? Well, uh, it can be done. And here it is. Uh, we've, got, we've, got a, we've tested it out on four cities from small to large, Brisbane, Melbourne, Berlin, London. It will come as no surprise to you that the most creative city out of that group is London. But the indicators are what's interesting and useful. That is these eight sets of uh, input data which allow us to generate these uh, comparative differences. And so we are not simply measuring creative firms, which is the first of those eight, creative industries, scale, scope, and employment. That's CI1 and CI2. But we are also measuring micro-productivity, uh, uh, what we call attractions in the econ economy of attention, which is um, 
uh, indicated by various means that we're trying out, one of them being the number of words in Wikipedia entries for different cities, uh, the number of pages in Lonely Planet guides, you know, how much attention does this city gain from its users or from visitors to it, and then uh, what difference is there among different cities uh, in that regard. So we're trying to find ways to um, uh, quantify uh, the, the idea of a city as an attractive place to others. There's some pretty obvious stuff on participation and expenditure, cultural consumption. Uh, there's uh, the whole matter of public support, how much government support is there for uh, creativity in a city. And it's often very considerable with galleries, libraries, archives and museums, often in public ownership, often with very large scale public subsidy and often uh, base, uh, the basis for uh, secondary uh, productivity in things like tourism industries. So that's important. Then the whole question of um, population-wide creativity. What is the uh, human resource that a city can call on? How committed is it to research and development activities? There's, there's then the question of global integration. How connected is a city with others? Uh, and finally, the Richard Florida uh, measures of uh, what he calls open to open, openness, tolerance, and diversity. That is, how, uh, how ready for... Uh, change, innovation, and future-facing um, uh, uh, ways of thinking, experiences, uh, is your particular city. Now, I, I have obviously not time to deal with this in detail, but we are trying to find proxies for these ideas and measures for them such that we can, in fact, assist, uh, whether it's urban planning authorities or entrepreneurs, to say, well, our city is underperforming in this area, what can we do about it? or our city is underperforming in relation to the opposition, so what can we do about that? And uh, we think this is uh, a tool that could be useful in that environment. And of course, it combines those humanistic values with large-scale uh, uh, network uh, uh, analysis uh, that can only mathematicians can do uh, in order to come up with uh, something that's quite simple, but nevertheless um, useful. So finally... Uh, I come back to Walt Whitman and say a great city is that which has the greatest men and women. Uh, another quote from your national poet, if he still is, used to be. Uh, but um, uh, what, what that means hasn't been taken seriously in the study and practice of creativity. And it means that we need to integrate our formal and informal learning systems. We need to develop population-wide models of creativity, not artist-based models. We need creative education for culture and cities, not just for businesses or clusters and services. We need to promote consumer entrepreneurship as well as the idea of creative cities, and this is for an innovation culture. And we need cultural science and interdisciplinary ambition, dialogue between different disciplines for the renewal of cultural and media studies. Thank you very much. And now William will take questions. I will, yeah. But actually, it's, I, I wish you'd been here about a month ago. We had a communications forum that dealt with the creative cities. And the opening, uh, the presentation was actually kind of striking because there was a pitch made by uh, the mayor of Rio and some folks from USC that basically argued for taking the cluster and service model and building a sort of network chain in global cities like Bombay and Shanghai and, of course, Rio and L.A. And there was a a sort of response, a quite critical response from one of our alum, uh, Parmesh uh, Shahani, who basically 
took your fourth notion of a kind of pervasive creative city approach where this stuff is all bubbling up from the bottom, that it's micro, it's embedded on the micro level and not at all this, this sort of old, this, this sort of reporting of, of yep. the old model. So right. it's, it's gratifying to hear this and I, Chi, I wish you'd been there in retrospect. Can I just say that the, uh, the, the reason why London scores so highly is that London has a very large population of uh, post-secondary students, like there's half a million, maybe more, uh, who are really the early adopters, the experimenters, the people who've got a bit of spare time and sometimes a bit of spare cash uh, to devote to new things. And without that, all of the things that London is famous for could not continue to grow. So it's not just one or the other, it's also how they combine and how a city nurtures both sides of that equation. Yeah, and I work often in a city that wants desperately to be one of the top creative cities, and I think they've gone from a sort of ban on homosexuals to trying to import 1.8% to line up with Richard Florida's notion. <laughs> it's a little curious. Um, and I, and I, what I really also, just to say, what I really like about the, the way you frame this is that it restores a, sem, a, a sense or a granularity of culture that's much broader than the one we tend to work with, and it's, it's quite productive. We have some folks here that, that do that. And, um, Anyway, let's open the floor to questions. Please sure. use the mics because this is being recorded. So, yeah, I can just uh, follow up on, on William's question a little bit. Um, so this discussion that happened at the Futures of Entertainment conference about the potentially sterilizing effects on uh, creative cities of state policies to try and implement creative zones um, so one one way one anecdote to talk about that same set of questions is from you know New York City in in the late 1990s and early 2000s. Um, so Giuliani um, at one point actually made a statement. He said, you know, the artists are my shock troops on the front lines of gentrification. <laughs> and so the idea was that by you know providing incentives for creative workers to move into low-income neighborhoods, you could then push out. Uh, working class people and communities of color that populated those neighborhoods to make make things safe for professional creative workers. But in the process, what you're doing is you're sanitizing and displacing the very, uh, you know, cultural diversity that's the fertile ground uh, for all the interesting things that happen in global cities and in the creative economy. Sure. So go a little bit deeper on how to navigate those kind of tensions between city or state policy around promoting creative industry and the tension that exists um, with bottom-up participatory cultures from grass grassroots positions, working-class cultures, migrant populations, all of the sort of flows and the class tensions that exist around, around them in, in urban spaces. Yeah. Uh, it's quite clear from your question that... Um, uh, that it is important not to choose between those things as polar opposites. Uh, it, it is absolutely clear that cities can change the way they uh, exist over a period of time using top-down policies, and they will do that. Uh, and sometimes the results of those things, while causing a certain amount of dislocation at the time, uh, may be regarded in a slightly more positive light later on. Uh, just to give you a personal anecdote, when I first went to Australia, I went to a little city you've probably never heard of called Fremantle, uh, which at the time was uh, undergoing gentrification uh, at max speed because of um, the America's Cup. 
which had been won by Australia three years previously and was being defended in Fremantle in 1986. Uh, that's not anything very much, you might think. But all the entrepreneurial figures around Perth decided to invest in modernising Fremantle for that occasion. And the city was completely changed forever from a wharfy town to uh, a kind of tourist destination. And that caused some disruption of the kind that you mention uh, and quite a lot of resistance among people who were disrupted. But how many, <laughs> I can't even remember how many years later, 25, 30 years later, uh, Fremantle uh, has an infrastructure that it wouldn't otherwise have had and it has a, a, a reputation for being a good place to visit that it didn't previously have. So, you know, there's a balance. You call it attention. It is precisely that. But at the same time, it's absolutely clear that if you pick winners, if you say these are the cultural uh, activities of which we approve and therefore we will support these and everybody else can get out of the way, then you will miss the very things from which innovation and change uh, will come, I won't say organically, but I will say um, uh, in terms of kind of network evolution, you know. Uh, so I think the, I, I, I don't know how to answer your question other than to say uh, it is quite clear that pain is caused when you try to develop a creative city. Gentrification has political issues, but uh, what is needed for a city to survive and work successfully is for it to combine top-down policy and um, strategic development with bottom-up uh, network-based creativity. Can I, can I just follow, because maybe to hit this from another angle, because I thought you made a really compelling case for the sort of power and resilience uh, of a, of a bottom-up creative scene. Um, and yet I know that you spend a lot of time, I mean, your work is commissioned and paid for by policymakers who want to know what to do. Yeah. The closing slides of this glorious new billion-dollar center all suggest a very centrist vision. And I know it's, ne you know it's never as easy as either or. But it does strike me, it strikes me there's a lot of radical potential in your argument, and yet the... the the support for it and the outputs are the outcomes are kind of almost at odds with sure. potentially at odds with that. So, and my response to that is the same as my response has always been to those who feel that in order to study culture, it is necessary to oppose the market, uh, and in order to study human creativity, it's necessary to oppose uh, corporations. I just don't buy it. Uh, I think uh, you need scaled-up agency. You need. Uh, ways in which uh, very large-scale social activities can be coordinated and, as I've already uh, argued, where complexity uh, can be brokered, as it were, and the city is, is, a, is a mechanism for doing that. So I'm not arguing that if only we left everything to the bottom-up self-organised folk, it would be all right. I don't argue that. I think there has to be a relationship between that kind of innovative productivity based on social networks copying and the kind of micro-productivity I've mentioned. We need to take that very seriously, but there is also uh, the other aspect of the economy, which still is productive and still has uh, a shaping influence on our lives and our activities. So I'm, again, I'm just, I'm sorry, I, I'm saying it again, I just don't think it's an either-or question. Uh, and I don't think all the radicality is on one side, if I can put it that way. Uh, I, I think there are very um, innovative and enterprising corporations who are changing things in ways that we should take notice of as much as there are you know, communities of resistance who are uh, defining realities that we need to take seriously. I think both of those things are true and we need to find ways to broker them. Cities are among the ways to do that.
Um, the bottom-up, the grassroots uh, forces, creative forces in the China context, um, for me, signals, signifies the countryside. So I, you know, I, I think the very notion of creativity carries a bourgeois connotation that seems to naturally exclude the countryside. The folk, artistic traditions in the underdeveloped regions, I'm thinking about uh, minority, um, some of the minority artistic uh, tr traditions are going extinct. And some people claim that those traditions like fashion, minority fashion, can only be rescued by the urban designers. So I'm, I'm just curious about whether the countryside, creativity and countryside, don't seem to come together very, very easily. I wonder what you think about it. And one of uh, the reservations I had about the advocacy of, um, of creative industry policies in developing countries is precisely because the resources then would flow into the urban areas, into the big cities, Shanghai, Beijing, Guangzhou, whereas the, the, the policy of cultural industry uh, allocates resources in a very different way. The regional, the poorer uh, counties and pro uh, provinces will have a better chance of getting resources. However, if the policy, if the state policy is making a shift from cultural to creative industries, it means something very different to how the pie is going to be divided. So I'm just curious about how what kind of role you would assign to the countryside in the larger creativity context? Sure. Uh, in the Australian context, the biggest export of the countryside these days is young people. Uh, so this isn't me determining a policy. This is, uh, uh, um, what shall we say, uh, I'm, I was about to say population-wide, but a very widespread desire for people to live in urban environments and to move to them. And you know that that's a very common problem in China. So I'm not trying to prescribe cities as the answer to everything, although I think uh, you have to recognize the reality that the concentration and uh, intensity of um, uh, relationships and, as it were, the accelerated speed of cities is a real cultural and economic uh, uh, engine. Um, so I, I, in a sense, I feel that I shouldn't apologize for creative industries being centered about cities, because they are. And people like cities for that reason, come to cities for that reason, and so on and so forth. So there is definitely, a, 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 as it were, a, a creativity deficit when you look at the countryside as it's currently organized. And uh, so that's on the one hand. On the other hand, policy settings can be shifted to take account of specific circumstances. Now, I don't know very much about the countryside in China, but I have uh, had uh, uh, quite um, significant contact with the uh, Indonesian government, and the Indonesian government has 200 million people, uh, God knows, I can't remember, but an in, a, a very large proportion of them under 25. Uh, this is a, a, a young population, most of whom don't live in cities. And so they want a creative uh, policy, but they want one that allows for 
the uh, realities of their circumstances uh, to be recognised. And the first thing they say is that we don't just have a creative industries policy, we also have an industrial policy, an agricultural policy, and an information uh, technology policy. So they, they try and mesh these things together. Secondly, they try and organise a creative industries or a creative economy policy around uh, rural crafts, around tourism, and around music, which are very widespread among populations and can be developed both commercially and culturally. And thirdly, they, they are trying to move away from the idea that the way to deal with the countryside is to subsidise it. Uh, they, are trying to, they are trying to find a way that the countryside can uh, develop um, uh, sustainable economic growth in its own terms. Now, I don't know whether any of those things are going to be successful, but they are attended to. Maybe they are in China, maybe not. Uh, I think China has done a remarkable job in developing its cities, and I personally feel that uh, the uh, economic and cultural advances in China would not have been possible had they been placed in the countryside only. They tried that experiment under the Soviet system. Uh, and so I think it's, there's, a, there's a need for us to, do, to think about trends over time rather than winners and losers at any one particular point. Having said that, I can't help but concede your point, which is that the countryside uh, often bears the brunt of displacement and uh, change in this context. Uh, thanks very much. Uh, enjoyed this. Uh, uh, I'm very interested in this term, cultural science, uh, and and I see that, uh, and and I'm interested in some way in sort of understanding the sense of it in the sense of a science. Uh, what is the objective and so forth? And I think you probably just outlined some of the some of the chief goals. But uh, so I, I I see a, a very useful. Uh, Framing through terminology, there's a lot of terminological construction here, and I think that's, uh, you know, uh, an excellent first uh, uh, stage of uh, creating a science is to create a nomenclature for how do you quantify and, and so forth. And then I think of sciences and... Uh, sciences have a sort of rational objective uh, and objectivity uh, by which they operate. And uh, this is uh, something that delivers us uh, through this process of, uh, uh, of, of focusing reduction and so forth on uh, key elements and key questions and key quantities. Uh, so I see all that operating, and I see it sort of operating here. And I guess my question is... is we're also dealing with this sense of this this emotional uh, experience of, of culture and, and what culture is and the sort of ineffable entities of culture that we all think of when we listen to Mozart or we. Li so I'm just wondering how do these how do these elements come together and and maybe they don't have to but uh, if you could just say a little more about uh, the science sense of this and where the sciences uh, would take us if it actually fulfilled the goals that uh, you have in your mind right now. Sure. Uh, this, uh, this term arose from our dissatisfaction with science as it's currently practiced in the communication field, which is based on 1950s or 30s positivism and, uh, as you say, objectivism. Uh, and uh, the, the kind of science that has caught our attention and fired our imagination comes from the evolutionary field rather than the objectivist field. And they, they are, to some extent, uh, um, you know, in tension with each other, even in the sciences. So, uh, you know, what do we mean by science? Well, uh, not simply a matter of reductionism, but modeling. How can you model and test uh, choices? How can you model and test 
cultural activities or cultural relations or the generation of meanings. And some tools are available for that, which have been uh, pre-imagined in uh, uh, cultural studies of various kinds, but uh, previously have lacked the computational power and the, uh, the modeling capabilities uh, to take them very much further. So for example, we're interested in open networks. Well, you know, we didn't have Barabashi in my younger day, uh, but we did have Lotman, uh, uh, Yuri Lotman, the Russian formalist, who, who kind of understands language not as you reduce it to the single phoneme, but you try and understand it as a whole, as the semiosphere. And then what are the relations between different parts of that system and how do they interact? That's a really interesting model that can be uh, put to some kind of quantitative test, and I think should be. And also it's a dynamic model where change is taken into account at the beginning. So we're not doing Saussurian science, we're doing Lotman science, or Barabashian science, if you like, network science, that is, for understanding large-scale networks. And uh, as far as the uh, emotions are concerned, uh, um, I just want to say that one of the people whose work we are trying to understand and, and uh, take seriously is that of the Santa Fe Institute, who think that they can produce in due course a physics of society. You know, they're doing cultural studies for us. Uh, and uh, they won't stop just because we don't approve or don't understand. Uh, and Scott Page, one of their leading lights, has a definition of culture, and it is this. Um, culture is suboptimal behavior. Now, I think we can do better than that. <laughs> so what I'm trying to say is that there is a cultural science, whether we know it or not, it's out there. The neurosciences, the uh, physical sciences, and the computational sciences in particular, are really interested in culture and are trying to find ways to explain it using their methodologies and techniques. And we should be in that conversation. Uh, and then uh, the, 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 uh, the, the idea of science as being a kind of ob objectivism needs to be itself criticized and we need to move beyond it towards science as modeling, as large-scale computer testing, and as uh, uh, an attempt to understand the relations between networks and agents. Now, some of this work is not new to us. Uh, you'll all have heard of Latour, and his work is clearly an attempt to develop a sociology of that kind of approach. So I don't feel that we're trying anything that's massively out of step with the times, but what I am really trying to do is to provoke my cultural and media studies colleagues uh, to take more seriously the developments of the last 30 years in the evolutionary sciences and the complexity sciences so that we can improve our own practice before or as well as them taking it over and saying that all the problems are solved. Uh, I, just before you come, I just my last anecdote on this, I, I have a good relationship with an evolutionary psychologist guy called Alex Masudi, who has produced a, a knowledge tree of, the, of approaches to the evolution of culture from different disciplinary backgrounds. The humanities is not mentioned. All of the cultural studies ever written out the door. So we need to be in the conversation. That's what I mean by cultural science. The willingness to talk to scientists on their own terms, in their own ground, and to say not we are reductive and objectivist, but we are naturalist. We think there is a world out there can be, that can be explained by observation and testing. And uh, it may be rather different from the kind of individualistic uh, uh, model of culture that you get from some of those folks. Uh, so for example, I have no interest in something called the brain 
because I think that the brain is itself a product of external um, mediated or communicated relationships. So I'm an externalist in that regard. And uh, I think, you know, trying to get to a point where we can have a sensible conversation with people who have different models of how human culture works is the goal. Thank you. And so I want to follow up a little bit on conversation we had earlier and also on uh, Sasha's uh, question. And so uh, Sasha, in, in quoting this uh, Mayor Giuliani quote, uh, sort of posited uh, uh, artists and the process of so-called gentrification against uh, communities, uh, communities including people of color, underrepresented groups. And of course, there are also people who are artists of color and who, who encompass both uh, uh, mul multiple uh, identities. And so part of the question is, uh, what are some of the types of projects that also capitalize on and are grounded in some of the kind of local uh, expertise and local wisdom of communities? And so just to give two examples, say one, uh, a bit older one, one newer, say the Black Arts Movement in, in the UK or even down in Providence, Rhode Island, not far from here, this Action Speaks uh, group, which took over a number of, of local buildings, produced a uh, uh, house for production, like printing presses, uh, digital media production, and capitalizing uh, on the inherent literacies and abilities of that community. And so th those are just a couple of examples that, that, that I have, but I'm wondering about you know, what are some of the kind of examples that they can uh, Act, to, act as agent, empowering agents within communities, and, and uh, so uh, not, not position, say, artistic and, and creative industries as opposed, in some sense, to communities of color, but rather that those communities are uh, are uh, fertile uh, grounds for this kind of production. And, and so, besides examples, also, what are some of the kind of criteria that helped such communities to flourish and become agentic? Thank you. Uh, well, I mean, thanks for the question because it helps me to uh, come through with some further thoughts on this topic. But uh, first of all, I just want to say that, again, I resist the idea that communities and commerce are opposed. And so I will answer your question, but before I do it, I just want to say something about this um, difference between high art and popular art, which is, in fact, a, also a question of gentrification. And uh, it's, a, it's a banal anecdote, but nevertheless one that I think is, you know, it's like one of those moments in history where everything changes and you have to think anew. And that is the year 1924. Uh, the year 1924 was the year Puccini died, and that was the end of grand opera. There have been no grand operas since, since Turandot, as I'm sure you know. Uh, uh, and a lot of musicologists have lamented the end of that uh, period of um, you know, classical romantic and uh, modern uh, classical music, uh, uh, as it were, around the death of that maestro. And uh, uh, so 1924, death of Puccini, end of opera, regret. Who released his first records in 1924? Louis Armstrong. Did the musicologists notice? They had never heard of him. Popular culture black player, and America. Just not the places they were looking for the continuation of the Wagnerian and Romantic traditions. So the, the discipline of musicology was completely blind to the development of new spirit and new innovation in uh, music because they didn't understand popular culture, they didn't understand black culture, and they didn't understand America. Well, you know, they've lived to regret that, but I'm just saying that there was a moment when these... Uh, these issues became 
uh, uh, quite interestingly connected. Uh, as far as the proper uh, response to your question goes, I think it's really important for us, first of all, to try and understand how creative enterprise works, whether it's commercially or community or organized, and for then to develop projects, relationships, and enterprises where folk can make those kinds of um, uh, uh, creative, or perform those kinds of creative activities for themselves and develop their community, their activism, or their, uh, uh, or their uh, aesthetics. No worries uh, for themselves. So uh, we, are, we at QUT are involved in quite a number of projects, which we did discuss earlier, uh, that have to do with uh, developing creative enterprise, not just creative individuals, not just artists, but creative enterprise, collective and, uh, 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 and uh, outward-oriented enterprise in, for example, indigenous media production. So instead of analysing indigenous media, as others have, uh, in relation to kind of racist stereotypes, we were interested in, in analysing create, uh, indigenous media in terms of indigenous media production. How much was there? What kind of help did it get? What kind of uh, outcomes did it produce, both uh, meaningful and political? Uh, and I think we need to concentrate attention on that kind of uh, enterprise. More recently, we've moved, because of the change in media from top-down to self-created, we've moved on to uh, a, a, long, a long but not large-scale project on digital storytelling, uh, where we are working with various agencies in the health sector, in the uh, information sector, for example, state libraries and museums, and also in the government sector, uh, not least over things like the apology to indigenous people uh, that uh, Australia is working its way through rather slowly, um, to produce digital stories about personal experiential matters that nonetheless have uh, you know, a communicative and often a political intention. And there are ways of doing that well and ways of doing that that produce kind of no outcomes. And this is what we're trying to learn. We're trying to learn how to use our models of creative enterprise, uh, indigenous and uh, other groups, I mean, I've only mentioned those, but there are others, uh, uh, desire for some kind of uh, self-representation and uh, new media technologies together to form new, new models of um, creativity that people can then self-organize and self-propagate and self-perpetuate as they wish. It's, it's a slightly different model from the YouTube model of, you know, uh, uh, upload, what is it, broadcast yourself. It's, it's different from that because it's based on a workshop uh, a, um, facilitated relationship where technologies, purposes and uh, and people with something to say are brought together uh, for quite an intense period of time. And then the results of that can be uploaded, but it's not just a kind of, you know, cyber culture uh, activity. It's a, it's a grounded, situated and sensitive um, process. So I, my, my feeling is that these things are where we should be looking for innovations, innovations at the margin, or what uh, Charles Leadbeater, the advisor to the British government, calls learning from the extremes. Where will we find new, new models of schooling? Well, how about South Africa? You know, not the posh school in central London. And uh, so I think there's, there's, a, there's a great deal of uh, traffic required between uh, different communities and different models of creativity, different models of sociality. Uh, that are now much more available for, um, uh, for us to learn from than has previously been the case. Hi. Uh, yeah, very interesting. And, and I think I, 
I, I agree with uh, the thrust of it, and, and the ideas I, I think I are, are really right on target. I guess I, I'm still, I, as a cultural anthropologist, I, I guess I come at this thinking, well, what, what are the examples on the ground that you would use to back this up? Um, and I guess you're saying a little bit of that now, and so I, I can imagine this being a nice example, the Indigenous, indigenous People's Story Writing Project. Uh, and I, but I can also imagine trying to present this in Hollywood, and they say, well, that's all well and good. You know, there's lots of production out there How making wrong they would be. well that there would that there's a lots of production out there and people will post pictures of cute cats and and there's lots of things but it doesn't what what does it actually do that we can point to and say okay here's the poster child for a new kind of productivity um, and I'm curious what you would use uh, to make that case. Sure. Uh, what, what's the specific example and, and, and something other than Wikipedia? Sure. Okay. Well, Wikipedia is not so bad. I, I'm no, gonna... I like it, but everybody uses Wikipedia. Okay. Some people say, well, okay, yeah, well, Wikipedia, but I'm what else? I'm going to do something equ- equally uh, predictable. I'm going to talk about games. Uh, one, of my, one of my postdocs, John Banks, has just completed a book on uh, co-creative games, where it is quite clear that... Uh, and the, by the way, I, I should say that the, his, he, he's an ethnographer of uh, new media, and uh, he, his own, particularly his PhD research, was based around uh, the investigation of innovation in a particular company, a company, a very successful company in Australia called Oren, who developed a new game, the name of which I've now forgotten, uh, which, they, uh, which they sought to launch globally, and it drove them bust. They've gone out of business. So a very interesting case study of innovation and collapse. And one of the, one of the most important factors in that process that he could observe was their unwillingness to take on board the, uh, the community of users that they uh, faced in terms of customers. They, they thought of users as customers, even high-end and uh, very active gamers as, as uh, part of the client base and tried to keep them out and felt that the people who had the knowledge and skill and imagination to develop the games were the games developers. But they were wrong. Uh, the, the, the thing needed to have a, a, a very strong uh, uh, relationship with its community of users and that community of users was providing a great deal of the input into what then became uh, you know, a successful game in technical terms, but uh, not in commercial terms. So that's just one very small example of a more general process in which it is the uses to which uh, productions of large-scale corporations or even small uh, firms are put uh, that determines whether they're going to be successful or not. And so I think the, the, the answer to your question is that Hollywood would say that, wouldn't they? Uh, because that's their business model and has to be. And it's not unsuccessful. I'm not saying it is. Uh, you know, they're doing okay, I think, maybe. Uh, now, how many viewers did uh, the last episode of MASH get? Was it 105 million? Uh, what does a, a season-topping uh, serial drama get now? Maybe 5 million? So they're doing fine. They shouldn't worry about anything. Um, but uh, uh, clearly, there is another model of productivity, one of them being YouTube, uh, that uh, allow and others being games that allow for a much greater role for participatory, and interactive, and co-creative uh, uh, um, participation by users. And that's that's the that's the environment that I'm interested in. That it is not dominant yet is quite clear, but that it is a model for further development 
is equally clear, but not necessarily if you look at media as such. The, 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 the place where I think we might learn a lot about how co-creative activities work is actually fashion, one of the least well-studied areas of uh, popular culture. Uh, and there are reasons for that which you know, are themselves not, well, are themselves to some extent reprehensible uh, because it's an over-feminized area. But fashion, uh, incorporates user-created content, consumer entrepreneurship, uh, copying as innovation, all of these things that I've been talking about, in ways that the fashion industry relies on, uh, and uh, you know, it relies on top-level consumers to, uh, uh, to um, uh, uh, as it were, market its wares, um, without any reliance on copyright at all. So there's a completely different model of creative connectivity in a network in fashion from the one that obtains in Hollywood. Hollywood has a business model. You know, long may they profit from it. But there are other models out there. There's a direct follow-up question to this from the um, back channel, which is an etherpad, which has been public, and there have been people dropping things in there. So the question is, how does this concept of microproductivity and the network as the site of creativity move beyond the work of Eric von Hippel and Yochai Benkler in their work on the democratization of innovation in the network economy and cooperation, respectively. Uh, well, Benkler and von Hippel are uh, clearly uh, pioneers in the analysis of these fields. Uh, although I think uh, I don't know about von Hippel, but Benkler is is uh, you know he has a particular agenda that he's pursuing, if I can put it that way. And uh, 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 I, I'm not sure that I would want to say that we've moved beyond it. What I'm trying to say is that we need to take this kind of approach to network productivity. Uh, more seriously in media and cultural studies, uh, uh, which clearly, you know, a number of people in that environment have read both von Hippel and, and uh, Benkler. Um, but I do think that there is a tendency to reduce what we're talking about to uh, the, uh, the logic of digital networks, if I can put it that way, rather than uh, seeking to understand uh, the agency of uh, networked, uh, networked uh, enterprises and individuals. Uh, so I just think we, you know, we need more than one string to our bow. We need more than one. Uh, um, uh, we, we need more than one theoretical input, as it were, into what we're thinking about. So yes, <laughs> but I, you know, moving beyond means simply assimilating and and trying to understand, and then uh, taking account of other. Uh, uh, initiatives and other thoughts and other theoretical approaches, and I think that's what we're doing. So, um, John, in one of your earlier slides, you had a slide of this the CCI index. Could you go back to that? Yeah. So, I think um, slide eight, sort of a follow up to what William brought up, an observation I'd like to make in a question. So, uh, I was in India, you know, under the Prime Minister's office to deploy innovation in India, and uh, one of the things I noticed was India has not, if you take science. No Nobel Prize winners have come out of India since 1947, right. post-independence, post all the top-down things that the government set up. And what I noticed in India was there's a feudal culture there. So when you look at these weights here, I would assign a significant weight to number eight. And I don't know if you're equally assigned weights when you did your formulation, but it looks like certain governance systems would seriously inhibit, you know, these, no matter what top-down things people put in place. So just a well, question I have. May I say that I couldn't agree with you more. And uh, we know that uh, a great, not a great many, we know that a substantial proportion of the indicators we've put into this index will simply be taken out by our Chinese partners. They simply won't, 
um, count them. And one of them is uh, set of indicators number eight. <laughs> so uh, uh, this is, um, as it were, an ideal type of a, of a creative city index. And the point about it is quite, you know, it's, it's quite consciously to encourage city authorities and uh, municipalities to think more seriously about what's needed to have a creative population. And that does include openness, tolerance, and uh, diversity. Uh, and we have some indicators to demonstrate it. So, for example, Berlin scores very highly in this area because it has a very high migrant population and it has a very diverse population compared with others. It's also quite a poor city compared with others. Uh, as a capital city, it's unusually so, um, perhaps like New York in the 19th century. Uh, so, you know, it has a working class base, a very, very uh, diverse uh, population and uh, no uh, large-scale um, corporate enterprise on top because that's all over in Frankfurt. So what I'm trying to get at is that we're trying to find a model for a creative city that people have to take seriously in order to understand uh, what is required, even when their own policy settings are heading in another direction. John, uh, I want to, first, I think it's really great that you framed the argument by saying culture is a system. It's not about these individual agencies. And of course, that's, I mean, that's a, an argument that folks like Howard Becker have made and made sure. well. Um, and this kind of echoes Jing's comment in mine, and I agree, this bifurcation of bottom up, top down, that doesn't work. I mean, I'm in agreement with you there. But it struck me that, and I'm asking this in light of a comment you made a few minutes back about, you know, let's, let's not just understand network as a, as a digital phenomenon, let's understand it as a, social I guess, phenomenon. as a social phenomenon. Correct. Well, Becker would agree full-heartedly, right? Becker is all about the need for the face-to-face -face and all these interactive, interacting systems. And I took what you were saying in terms of the micro-argument and actually the, the collaboration that's been enabled by digital networks to point to an in-between space, or let's say a third space between the top-down and the bottom-up, an enablement of the bottom-up that can also be shackled by the, or put to use by the... Uh, but. To me, that's all about what that enables is a lot of things. It enables a de-territorialization uh, of creativity. Mm -hmm. You don't have to live in a city anymore. If you want to contribute to the, um, to the Linux community, you can be anywhere. You're just doing your bit on the computer. Quite. If you want to contribute to fashion design or writing, you know, fan fiction or whatever, it doesn't really matter where you... I mean, one of the great advantages is it is de-territorialized mm -hmm. at a moment of kind of eco, you know, eco, uh, tr eco disaster. Actually, the, there are fantastic affordances in thinking about what digital networking, yep. as, uh, how that interfaces with social yep. and gets away from Becker's notion of a very territorial, urban-based, high concentration of these industries. So I think that's what I was trying to get at and sure. might echo some of Jing's notion of the country. Sure. Well, I, I can't deny it, um, but I do think that uh, uh, you know, there are limits both ways. And uh, one of the... Um, uh, which I say one of the hopes expressed in Australia was that we could develop a games industry because people liked living near the surf uh, and they could, uh, you know, they could sell their games that they'd developed into a global market. But in fact, uh, what that meant was that there was no mid-level or top-level agency who, uh, for publishing games in Australia. We don't have a games publisher. They have to sell their product to EA. And uh, they are at a disadvantage because they're in Australia, you know. So, uh, and the same goes for the Hollywood system too. That, uh, you know, if you're, if you're going to make it in a certain uh, uh, environment, whether it's uh, in the movies or in fashion or in games, then there is a strong attractant to the place where 
which is regarded as you know, the, the, the center of um, creativity for that particular activity, whether it's London or Paris or whatever. So I think there is still a, there is still a territorial pull which we need to simply observe, take seriously and understand, especially if it's our desire, as several people have clearly expressed, to minimize its impact in certain particular contexts. So if you want to say, in the countryside, we need to do this, you certainly need to understand what the role of the city is in order to be able to make that work. And the same with uh, various uh, social groupings and the same with the difference between um, territorial and cyber production productivity. You know, I'm, uh, I think what I'm trying to say is, is that before we choose favorites among all these players, we need to understand how the system as a whole works and how different systems interact. Uh, I don't know much about social networks. I'm not a social network person, but I do know quite a bit about language and language is a social network, you know. And uh, one, of the, one, of the, uh, one of the problems with language is that it's very rarely taken seriously as an object of study by people who are interested in these kinds of activities. And I think there's, a, there's lots of room for um, uh, re revisiting language as a, as a, uh, a complex network uh, in various contexts. Uh, so for example, one of my postgrads is, uh, well, postdoc, sorry, is working on translation between languages on the internet, in using Google, for example, or in Wikipedia, uh, where there are quite clearly very new uh, um, possibilities opening up uh, and as the translation technologies get better uh, you know it, uh, it's quite clearly going to be a major part of the internet now which languages are online uh, is my language online uh, how, how is the translation affected and what kind of documents are required to, to back it up uh, become questions that you couldn't ask before there were digital media so I'm, I'm really interested in social networks, digital networks and uh, the, their relationships with territories. But I think there are, that what I'm trying to get at, I guess, is that those things are, are uh, uh, posing questions to us that we haven't previously been able to ask. So uh, an, an example of this is children as innovators, which nobody ever talks about. And um, a very good historical example of children as innovators is accent. Uh, where did the Australian accent come from? It had to be invented by children because the people sent to Australia had either London accents or Irish accents, overwhelmingly. Uh, the Australian accent is neither of those things. Who could possibly have invented it? It must have been the children of those immigrants who spoke to each other and mixed and matched the uh, resultant um, uh, you know, peculiar sounds. <laughs> uh, and so all I'm getting at is that a system has m means of innovation uh, that we, we uh, you know, neglected our peril. And the, the agents of innovation are not always where we first think of looking for them. Hi there. So thanks first for the talk. Really interesting stuff. Um, I've been kind of mulling over this, this question. I, I think it's clear that uh, these sort of bottom-up um, networks of production and the, the cultural forms that they, they produce, they certainly empower people. Um, but then people can, can leverage that power in whatever way they choose to. So I wonder if there's sort of a, a fundamental instability there that, that might make it difficult to even stably define these networks and these forms as creative in some way. Um, to give you a, an example of what I'm, what I'm thinking about here, 
so, so there's this thing, flash mobs, which is you know collectives of people who organize in a location and do something. Mm-hmm. Um, six or seven years ago, when we first started hearing the term flash mob, it definitely had a sort of whimsical context, to sort of let's all meet in the town square and do the YMCA together kind of kind of thing. Sure. Um, it, it's taken a turn towards more kind of sinister. Uh, connotations recently. We, we had the, the London riots and, and the riots elsewhere in, in English cities um, that were, I mean, that, that's sort of halfway through a spectrum where some people could say that was productive uh, social protest. Others might say it was just wanton destruction. Um, in, in Philadelphia, in the city of Philadelphia, there's actually been a, a curfew, a 9 p.m. curfew for minors for the last five months uh, that they're enforcing every day of the week um, because there are these uh, sort of existentially uh, uh, questionable flash mobs where, where kids, young kids are showing up, taking over a, a couple of city blocks and just having this sort of an orgy of destruction where they attack passers-by, they, they loot buildings, um, there are all sorts of theft and violence goes on and then they dissipate and move away. Um, so, so I think that's an interesting example of sort of what, what started off as a, as a creative form turning into what we might actually call a destructive form, the, the opposite of creativity. So do you, do you feel the same way that there's, there's kind of a fundamental instability there? Do you think it's, um, you know, that's actually a form of creativity, just we, we don't really think about it that way maybe on no, one, one level? I don't necessarily think the latter, uh, although I am a great believer in the idea of creative destruction. I don't think uh, creativity comes without cost. Uh, but I, I guess uh, uh, you know, my, my immediate response to that is that the, 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 the important word in what you've uh, described there is instability. And the, uh, the, 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 one of the um, uh, qualities that I'm trying to capture in the work that we're doing is change, dynamism, and uh, uh, crazes are clearly part of that. So uh, there is a, there is a, a clear, uh, possibly even modelable uh, career of ideas and of movements uh, through you know, a curve of some kind, not for me to say, because uh, I'm not the mathematician, but I'm sure that that can be tracked, uh, where an idea gains you know, incredible purchase and then tails off. Uh, uh, and I think we need to understand how that works and perhaps be a little more relaxed about the point where it peaks and worry a bit more about the, uh, you know, the, the, the general process. Um, and the other thing I would say is that I don't think there's anything new in this. Uh, I, I'm, I hate to do this, but I've read Edward Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. I'm very sorry, but I have. And uh, he describes... <laughs> He describes exactly those kinds of uh, riotous behaviours by youth, uh, in particularly in Constantinople, uh, where you had the you know the, the colours of different gladiatorial supporters behaving like football hooligans, and uh, you know uh, rioting and looting um, as a hot weather pastime uh, among um, uh, young folk. You know it's it's a it's a it's a it's a function of cities. Uh, I don't think it's either creative or destructive. I, I think there's some other way of understanding it, uh, but not as a product of the internet. It's not the internet's fault, you know? And, um, uh, and the fact that people could text each other uh, in order to meet up at a certain you know, outlet of Topshop and help themselves, well, okay, but that's, that's got a much longer history than, uh, than that might suppose. So I think you know, imposing curfews on young people, uh, stupid, but... Um, uh, the, the phenomenon is is older than it's given credit for. Uh, it has its own internal logic and phases, and it behoves us to try and understand it better. 
sure there are lots more questions, John, but um, for those of you that have them, be sure to get Digital Futures for Media and Cultural Studies. <laughs> Thank you Hot very much. Hot off the presses, John. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you.